0: Uh, The news of the week, probably uh, preempting it for next week, is that it looks like Israel will have a government. (laughs) But we'll talk about that next week. I'm just preempting you, because I'm reading the tea leaves into the future. In fact, what I wanted to talk about was something that was announced on Twitter about two, two and a half weeks ago, and they announced that the third season of Shtisel, for those of you who follow such things on Netflix, will know that Shtisel is being released. And Shtisel um, is an interesting sociological phenomena. If you don't know what it is, ask your kids. <laughs> um, or go on to Netflix. Interestingly enough, next time you're in Israel, and God willing it'll be soon, there is a small network or chain of classic Eastern European Jewish food place. It's called Shtisel. There's one in Bnei Brak. I think there's one in Petah Tikva as well. Anyways, next time you go and they have like real gefilte fish. Real gefilte fish isn't the kind you buy in the store. That's, it's in, actually in the body of a fish. It's, you don't have to eat it. You probably won't want to eat it. But it's, not, it's interesting to look at. In any event, uh, Shtisel is a fascinating sociological thing because it is an enormous hit in Israel. By enormous, I mean it's enormous in Israel. And at the same time, on the counterbalances is that we all know, at least even peripherally, of the deep tensions between the ultra-Orthodox in Israel and mainstream Israeli society, which has led lots of sociologists and philosophers and theologians and political commentators and people who just study Israeli society to ask the question, Why do people love shtisel so much when they actually dislike the ultra-Orthodox so much? We're not going to talk about that today. But it's a good question. What I actually want to talk about is a small little custom that you often see in shtisel. And that is when the men are about to daven, to pray, they take out a small belt, a cloth belt, and they tie it around their waist. Irrespective of whether or not they're wearing an actual belt on their pants, it's a small cloth belt that they tie around their pants, around their shirt, their waist, excuse me and only then will they begin praying. That little belt in Yiddish is called a gartel. And the idea behind it is it is a long-standing Hasidic custom of a few centuries already, and the reason why they wear this extra belt around their waist before they pray, is because it actively symbolizes something. And what is the active symbol that it symbolizes? Of the differentiation, the separation, the division between the lower part and the upper part. It also speaks, I think, symbolically of something else. The thing that it also speaks about symbolically is a competition of some kind of battle between the lower part and the upper part. Now in English, we have lots of expressions for this. We talk about being torn between our heart and our mind. If you live long enough, and God willing, you will all live long enough, and you will experience life deep enough to eventually experience the pull between something you rationally feel and something that's in your heart. That belt that people at the Hasidim wear is a symbol of that tear that competition between the heart and the mind the upper and the lower now we live as we know in a very competitive world in fact the world has never seemed on some level to ever have been more competitive we're competitive in school we compete against ourselves and against other people but a little politically we are we are competitive to the point with extreme polarization. It is not at all unusual, certainly in the United States, and I understand there may be a great deal of Americans watching today. Um, it is not an all unusual, uh, certainly during the Trump era, for a, a raft of newspaper articles coming out just before American Thanksgiving, talking about how do you get together with your family members if they are Democrats or Republicans? We are competitive religiously, meaning that we tend to view whatever kind of denominationalism that we accept in our lives, we view it on some level as being triumphant and profoundly true to the denigration of other kinds. In work, professionally, we are competitive with the people we work with, our neighbors we're competitive with. We look at the cars they drive, we listen to the vacations they take, There's a never-ending act of competition in our lives. And what does that lead to? One thing that it leads to, competition does, is control. When you live in a world, in an ecosystem that is highly competitive, you look to engage in any kind of control you can. Now, control, just for the record, control is not a bad thing at all. In other words, if you're looking for a heart surgeon, or a doctor or a plumber to fix something in your home, you want them to be in control of the situation. There's no question. Control leads you to believe that if you can control just enough things in your competitive realm, that you'll be able to succeed in what you're doing. But here's the dark belly of control. The dark underbelly of control, if you take it to its logical conclusion, is that control leads you to perfection. You're thinking, if I can c- control this just enough, if I can get my hands on this and manage it and control it to the nth degree possible, I will eliminate all the competition in my life. I'll give you an example. In our relationships, if we feel that I, if I can control the other people in my life, I'll rid myself of disagreements with them. (laughs) I won't have to worry about having differences in my life. As I said to you before, if you're going to a doctor, you want him to be a perfectionist. If you're hiring somebody to write computer code for a program or an app, you want them to be a perfectionist. If you're hiring a contractor to do your kitchen, you want them to be a perfectionist. But you don't want to live with a perfectionist. And you don't want to be a perfectionist. Really, you don't. Which brings us to our beloved, dear, icon and friend, Moses. Ava, the very end of the Torah reading that you read so beautifully this morning, really beautifully, tells us in, in classic biblical style, in four sentences, what it says, you could write a book on. It tells us, Now, Moses is quite old already. It tells us that he takes another wife. And then as he takes another wife, his brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, become very, very angry at him. And they begin talking behind his back, saying bad things about him. And it explodes open into a huge conflagration. The family problem becomes a societal problem. The interesting story behind this is the ancient rabbis, in studying the life of Moses, offer this insight. They said that whenever Moses spent too much time in the public realm looking after the needs of the Israelites, adjudicating business disputes, administering their societal needs, what did people say? Oh, he must be having problems at home. He's never home. And then when Moses retreated home to spend time with his family, to give them a little bit of his time and his effort, what did the people say? "Eh, He's not working for us anymore. He doesn't care. Which ultimately is a reflection that what the ancient rabbis were saying is that there's nothing that Moses could do that satisfied anybody. If he was outside, they complained about his inside. If he was inside, then they said he didn't care about the outside. And could you imagine for a moment what it must be like for a person to live under those conditions, of never being able to satisfy exactly what people want from him. And so at this very end of the Torah portion, which we know is towards the end of his life, Moses takes another wife. And you ask yourself, what was he doing? Maybe it is on some level that Moses came to realize a deeper truth about the way that we live, and the way that we should live. And I'll tell it to you in a story. About 20-something, gosh, more than that, it's almost 30 years now, about 30 years ago, there was a very, very well-known, highly regarded American rabbi, um, and he served in Philadelphia, okay? And um, he was retiring, and as he was retiring, they, this congregation, a very large one in Philadelphia, was looking for the new rabbi. And at the same time, there was a, also a very well-known investigative journalist who was saying Kaddish in the congregation, they had just, he had just lost his mother. <clears throat> and so he was very drawn into the environment of this congregation, once again, highly regarded, a very large congregation, going through this upheaval where the senior rabbi who has been there for more than 35 years is leaving, and they have to bring in this new rabbi. He quickly saw that there was a great story to be found here. He wrote a book about it, and guess what it's called? The New Rabbi. (laughs) In any event, he followed the outgoing senior rabbi who was packing up his office to move to a smaller smaller office in the synagogue to make way for the new rabbi. And he turned to him, the reporter did, and asked him, he says, what are you going to do now, now that you're kind of retired? And the rabbi turned to him and said, I think I'm going to go to therapy because I've spent almost 45 years of my life being rabbi so-and-so and I have no idea who Jerry is. What an insightful and powerful thing to say, to realize that you aren't just the thing that people see you as or people want to see you as, but that there's a human being that lurks inside. Maybe, just maybe in the Torah portion for this morning. Moses is coming around to the moment in his life where maybe there wasn't a therapist to go to necessarily in the middle of the desert, but that Moses with the keen understanding of himself understood that there is a person beyond what people can see and that he doesn't have to aim for perfection. He doesn't have to be in control of everything. And that understanding that is a deeper unlocking of what it means to be a human being. The hard and difficult truth of that is we often discover that towards the end of our lives and not at the beginning of our lives. But there's another truth to be found in that as well. It is an idea that was shared by Winston Churchill decades ago. Churchill once lamented what would happen to the world where the most brightest, and most admired people were, were in our society, were to become movie stars. And he said, the difference between a real hero and a movie star, or a rock star, is that they're only built on image. But real heroes are built on character. The things that come from the inside. One of the things that emerges so beautifully in the Torah portion for this morning Ava, one of the things that will emerge from this this experience on this morning and that will carry you for the rest of your life is the truth that the way that we become the people that we want to be is by searching for character and not for image. It is to become something, not just appear as something. We should all be blessed with that truth. Shabbat shalom and a mazal tov to you all.